24, Luke chapter 24, we're going to dive into verses 36 through 49, 24 verses 36, uh, 36 through 49, and these are God's words to us on this morning in the gospel of Luke. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance from the forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearers, readers, and doers of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. This is always a very special day as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we have seen a unbelievable amount of turmoil in the last couple of years as this day has arrived and passed. And so with that turmoil and with that sorrow and with that loss and that grief that we have seen, it always seems to be that not only will you see grief and sorrow, but you will also see doubt creeping. Whenever grief and sorrow is present, doubt will come and be present as well. And so I've watched doubt creep into so many hearts during this season in profound ways. Many people have, have, have renounced their faith. Many people are hanging on to their faith by a, by, by, by a thread. And so my heart this morning and my desire is to offer hope to the doubter, to the skeptic, to the weary, to the disappointed. That's what I want to do. And I want to do that by pointing to this resurrected Savior named Jesus Christ. I offer you three points this morning. The resurrected Christ meets doubters. The resurrected Christ gives grace to doubters. And the resurrected Christ moves doubters from unbelief to disbelief. And I'll explain it towards the end. First, I want to set this story up by going back a few verses uh, from where we are pitching our tent. Because our story picks up after Jesus has resurrected and the word has began to spread. And I want to set the stage real quickly for this resurrection um, by, by pointing, or for this resurrection moment, by pointing to two or three earlier moments before we get to verse 36. First, we see early on in this chapter that the sister disciples vis- uh, visit the empty tomb. They come to uh, put spices on Jesus to, pre, you know, to preserve the body, obviously to keep the body from smelling. And the early verses of this chapter tell us that Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and other women, prepared spices for his burial the day before. And so on Sunday morning, they're going to take these spices, returning back to the tomb to take these spices when they are met by angels who ask them, why are they looking for the living among the dead? 
Jesus was not dead, in other words. Jesus was not awaiting burial spices. Jesus was alive as he is today. Can you imagine being those women on that day gathered around this tomb as angels are speaking to them and telling them, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Distraught, broken, confused, sad at the point, at the point of death and at the death of the one who they loved and who, and who they were certain had come to save them. And then in an instant, all the disappointment is washed away somewhat. They're still bewildered, confused. What's going on? What's happening? Because they show up to an empty tomb. Can you imagine that walk back home? The excitement, the anxiousness, the astonishment, the uncertainty of it all. Nevertheless, they get back to the 11. And remember, there is 11 now because Judas was one of the 12. He betrayed Jesus in a tragic and heartbreaking way and ultimately committed suicide. And now they're down to 11. It shows you the kind of pain that's already, that they're already experiencing, not to mention that they've seen, their, they've seen their Savior get hung on a cross. They brush the women off immediately when the women come to tell of what they've seen and heard. They say that they're telling idle tales, which is really a crude way, actually. If you go back into the Greek and you examine that word, it's a crude way of basically saying that the women are acting delirious. Some of y'all would say that they are cuss word. That's how crude it actually is, believe it or not. But they're not only lying, but they're telling the kind of lies that appear as if they are losing their minds. If you are here this morning, if you're watching online, and you're saying to yourself, man, I'm just here because my family drug me here, <laughs> or, or I'm just here, you know, because one of my friends, you know, told me to turn on YouTube this morning and watch it, but I don't really believe in any of this junk. You are not that far off from the disciples themselves on the Sunday morning when they first heard about the report of Jesus' resurrection. They were just as skeptical. Peter, as, and, and as we learn later on John, through John's gospel, we learn about John as well. Peter and John, they head back to the tomb to see for themselves what happened. They're skeptical. Everybody's skeptical, but Peter's like, I'm out the door. Let's go see what happens. John says, I'm out the door with Peter. John says he beats Peter uh, to the tomb. He wants to make sure that you know that. And then, and, then scriptures, and then scripture says Peter leaves the scene marveling at what has taken place. That's what Luke tells us, that he leaves the scene marveling at the fact that there's an empty tomb. And this is a couple of moments that Luke captures. But then I want to look at one more moment that Luke captures here in this same chapter. So Luke records another moment where Jesus appears to two men heading back, to, uh, heading back from Jerusalem to their village in Emmaus. And Luke captures these two men in the middle of shock and confusion because they are leaving on the same day that word is spreading that Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty. And so they are walking back to their village in the middle of a discussion, talking about what, had, what has happened and what could it mean. And I imagine these two men who didn't want to get their hopes up too much were talking about it, saying, well, you know, maybe there's, you know, maybe there's a logical explanation for what's happened. Verse 21 describes already how they had already been disappointed because they thought that Jesus was going to be the one to set everything back in its proper place. Disappointment is going to be really, really important in just a second. 
And so they came in, they, they probably were hedging their bets, so to speak, you know, uh, let's not get too excited. And then into the midst of this confusion enters another character. Verse 14 and 16, it says, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so Jesus enters into the conversation, but they don't know that it's Jesus because their eyes have been kept from seeing him. There are, very, there are two very important points I want to I highlight in this encounter with Jesus. Start, start with verse 25. Read, read with me. Chapter 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus joins these two men on their way home, and he listens to their confusion and disappointment about his death because for, for them, him dying must have meant that he wasn't the one. And after hearing them discuss this and discuss the empty tomb for a minute, he butts in. And he says, did you guys miss this completely? Did you not know that the one who was coming as the Messiah had to suffer? And this is my first point that I want to highlight in this encounter. How could they have known this? Jesus says, it's all throughout the Old Testament. Everywhere you turn in the Old Testament, it's about me. When the prophets spoke, they were speaking about me. When Moses was speaking, he was speaking about me. When you seen the rock in, Mo, uh, in, the, in the account of Exodus, it was about me. When you seen the lamb's blood being posted on the doors in order to protect the firstborn, it was about me. When you seen the wheel in the middle of the wheel, it was about me. When you saw, when you heard about the story of hearts being turned from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, it was because of me doing what I did. Everywhere you look in the Old Testament, he's saying it's about me. In other words, one thing that Jesus makes clear in this resurrection appearance is that all of the Bible has been pointing to him. And this moment, if we are paying attention, and this moment right here, he, uh, all, of the, all of the Bible has been pointing to, if we are paying attention. Now, here's another important point. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They couldn't see that Jesus was escorting them back to their village. Why was this? Did they not know how he looked originally? Did maybe his clothes, he had, you know, maybe some resurrected new gear? They couldn't, they couldn't quite capture it. Maybe his glorified body. What was it about Jesus that they could not recognize? Verse 31 gives you the answer. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Nothing changed about Jesus just it went from them not having vision to see him to having vision to see him. You see, the concealing of Jesus and the revealing of Jesus were both divine acts. When he desired for them to see him clearly, he opened their eyes. 
when he was not ready for them to see him, their eyes remained closed. You see, these men had no hope in seeing the resurrected Christ without the resurrected Christ opening their eyes to see him. This is a healthy lesson for us to learn, people of God. You want to take pride and you want to take privilege in knowing Jesus will always remember that it was him who opened your eyes to even see. It's grace to see, saints. It's grace to see. Had to get your attention in all sorts of ways. Many of you got stories of how he got your attention. But it was grace that brought you. Our ability to see the work of Jesus or the resurrected Christ is an act of divine grace. The Lord opens our eyes to behold his glory. The Lord is patient with us as we, as we grow to see his glory and see him as the resurrected king of the universe. So these moments precede this moment that I just read to you this morning in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. And they set the stage for this last moment that we're about to uh, discuss. Now, real quickly, jump back to Emmaus for a second, the, the, the last thing we just talked about. Jesus is on the road with two men, and they get to their stop. However, it's getting late. So they ask Jesus to stay because it appears he has farther to go. And I love Luke's words in verse 29. He says this, or verse 28. So they, near, they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther. It feels like it's Luke's way of saying that these two men thought that by asking Jesus to come and stay, they were creating an encounter with Jesus. By inviting a man that Obviously, man, it's been a long day. We've had a long walk. There's been a lot going on in Jerusalem. We had a lot to talk about. Hey, let's continue this conversation. Why don't you stay with us overnight? Let's have a great meal and let's continue to have this dialogue. But they did not realize that the encounter had already been established by Jesus. You see, the Lord is always moving a million steps ahead of us to establish an encounter with him. Nevertheless, he agrees to stay, but he's agreeing to stay because he's already set up the appointment. And at supper, he breaks bread. And when he breaks bread, all of a sudden, boom, just like that, their eyes are open. Wait a second, that's Jesus. And then like that, he's gone. And so they say, wait a second. <laughs> did you see it? Did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. Oh, wait, so we're not crazy. You saw it? I saw it. And so they immediately say, we got to go back to Jerusalem. So they just walked seven miles to Emmaus. And they, and they said, Jesus, come on, stay over. Or not Jesus, but hey, random guy who we don't know, stay, stay, stay with us, right? Stay with us. You, you, got, you probably got a long walk, a longer walk, and it's getting late, so stay with us. And, and then random guy all of a sudden becomes the resurrected Christ. They see him. And they say, man, we got to go back to Jerusalem. And so even though it's late and even though they're tired, they're excited. They're energized, and so they immediately go back. And that's where we are in verse 36. Jesus comes in the room as these men are telling this story to the disciples. Jesus comes in the room and he says, peace to you. 
I love that the very first words that Jesus speaks is peace to you. I know in many ways it's a customary greeting, but we also have to consider just how much peace has been lost since his death. But the arrival of the resurrected Christ is an arrival of peace again. They are now in the presence of the resurrected Savior. And like everyone, you know, has, everyone has already testified. The women have testified. Peter and John have testified. And now these men who have come in the middle of the night from Emmaus, <laughs> tired and weary, but, but so energized at what they've seen that they've come to testify. Jesus is indeed risen. And here they are now in the presence of this resurrected Savior. And what is the first reaction we get? Doubt. By now, you would think the doubt was practically impossible. They witnessed Jesus' miracles, walking on water, feeding what could have been 20,000 people when you include women and children off of two pieces of fish and five loaves of bread, ceasing storms, healing all manner of diseases, and even bringing the dead back to life. They heard from Jesus' mouth that this day was coming. Matthew records at least three occasions from uh, where, where, he, where he speaks this. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 through 19 is one such case. It says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And there are the disciples listening to this. And probably nodding their heads or something, or I don't know, probably writing on their scrolls and not paying attention. Who knows? But nevertheless, there is Jesus laying it out for them over and over and over again, and them not paying attention. They received a report from the women in the group as they went to tend to the body of Jesus, only to find it gone. They got apostles or, or disciples at this moment now declaring, hey, Jesus, the, the tomb is empty. We don't see him. And yet they're still doubting. And now in the middle of receiving a report from the two who have been with Jesus in their home, who had Jesus in their home just a few moments ago, they immediately had to come back and tell them about it. And they still doubt. How could they have doubted? How could they have doubted, you say? You know, D.A. Carson, um, in his book, uh, Scandalous, talks about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He talks about that there's multiple causes for doubt. There is a moral cause. In other words, I want to do what I want to do. And so because I want to do what I want to do, then I'm, I am prone to doubt the God who's telling me to not do what I want to do, but to do what he wants me to do. So there's a moral cause for doubt. There's also a philosophical cause for doubt, an intellectual cause for doubt. You know, there's just some humps that I can't get over and people are trying to get me to, you know, to, to get over those humps. But there's some things, ah, man, it just seems a little funny here, a little funny there. Now I got some questions about the his, his, um, historicity of Jesus and the veracity of Jesus, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, little, I'm a little hesitant on that. But one cause of doubt that D.A. Carson brings to light, and this is an important one, is doubt that comes from tragic circumstances. Doubt that comes from shape-shifting, life-shifting circumstances. You see, that's the doubt at work. 
in the heart of the apostles and in the heart of the disciples. And I believe it's the doubt at work in many of our hearts right now as we are currently wrestling uh, with this pandemic and wrestling with death and, uh, death and grief and all sorts of things. You see, they doubt in the face of an unbelievable reality and indisputable facts because they were disappointed unbelievably. You see, disappointment lives, uh, one, author, one author says, the disappointment lives in the past and focuses on what did not go well, but doubt takes disappointment and places it in the future. To understand the doubt of the disciples in the face of indisputable evidence is to spend a moment wrestling with their disappointment. If you, if you, pick, up the, if you pick up right here and you say, I can't believe these guys doubt it, how silly of them. You're not wrestling with what happened. Remember, they hung everything on Jesus. Peter said to himself in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What will we get in return? And you know what Jesus told him? Basically, you will get to reign with me. You've left everything and for leaving everything, you will get to reign with me. So they hung everything on Jesus. They hung everything on Jesus only for Jesus to be hung on a cross. Can you imagine the disappointment of watching your destiny die? This is at the root of a lot of our struggles with God. Disappointment. You know, therapists tell us that, that grief is not just grieving loss, but it's grieving the loss of a preferred future. These men had collected a future in their minds. And that future was gone. I watched many preachers depart from the faith over the past two, three years. I've watched many lay Christians depart from the faith over the course of my life. And rarely, rarely have I ever come in contact with one person who said, you know what? <laughs> I just decided I just wasn't believing anymore. No, nah, man, everything's been good. Life's been great. Just, you know, I don't know, just decide to change it up, do something different. No, that's not the testimony in the story. Most of the stories have somewhere buried underneath them profound and deep disappointment. The arrival of the kingdom is an already not yet experienced, saints, meaning that we enjoy the already, the fruit of the resurrection today and the already is newness of life, newness of heart, the spirit of God living in us, uh, newness of family in, in the sense of a, of a church, a body of believers who are all on one accord and moving in the same direction and hoping and believing in the same things. Forgiveness of sin continually. But we also are still waiting on some of the fulfillment of the kingdom. That's the not yet. The end of death, the end of suffering, the end of conflict, the end of sin. So when those things show up, suffering, conflict, death, sin, 
When those things show up on our doorstep in profound ways, they can have the same impact on us as they did with the disciples. You can see all sorts of evidence of God's uh, truth and faithfulness before you and still say, ah, I don't know about that. For many, they can have an even worse impact because unlike the disciples, many never recover from that disappointment. It's too severe. It's too hurtful. Let's read a few more verses here because I want to show you what absolutely blows me away about this encounter. Verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still believed for joy and were marveling, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the repentance of, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Here is what's fascinating about this encounter with a room full of doubters. Christ offers unbelievable grace in their doubt. You see, it's important for us to see that even with or even in our inability to overcome our disappointment with God and our subsequent doubt in God, in the face of all the evidence of God's goodness towards us, we are still routinely met by God with grace. Over and over and over again in our doubt, we are met by God with grace. All the evidence of Christ in the world, and yet they still doubted. But even in the face of all the doubt in the world, God met them with grace. To the unbeliever that may be sitting in this room or watching online, you may not feel like you can see God at this moment, but God sees you. And no matter where that doubt has come from, he will meet you right where you are with immeasurable grace if you will turn in faith to him. And to the believers sitting in this room or watching online, many of us are in the middle of the rockiest season of our lives. And it has left us worn down and beaten up and disappointed. And yes, sometimes even questioning God. And you may sometimes wonder where God is in all of this. And I have an answer for you. He is with you. Even in the face of profound doubt, God has met you with more grace to run this race. He meets those hanging on by a thread in their doubt. And he meets those reaching for a rope in their doubt. All the evidence of Christ in the world, and yet they still doubt it, but Christ meets them there. So how does the resurrected Christ meet his disciples in this moment with grace? In verse 39, he says, see my hands and feet, that it is. I myself, touch me and see. The resurrected Christ gives grace through physical evidence. He allows them to touch him 
He creates intimacy in this moment. He doesn't have to do any of this. But he wants them to see that this is flesh and blood that stands before you. This is one who has actually suffered and bled on your behalf. One that has died and that has risen in the similar body that you will one day experience. This will be like, you will be like this one day. You will defeat death one day. Come, see, touch. He even gives them physical evidence by having a meal with them. Y'all got anything to eat? What y'all cooking? Broiled fish? Oh, man, sounds great. We have a piece. What's he doing? He's giving them a taste of what's to come. We'll dine together. We'll eat. We'll have fellowship, but fellowship without suffering, fellowship without tears, fellowship without sorrow, fellowship without weeping, dinners without the pain. But the resurrected Christ also gives grace through prophetic evidence. Luke tells us that he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here Christ reminds the disciples in Jerusalem the same things that he reminded the men on the way to Emmaus. That the prophets spoke ahead of time of what was to come. You see it all over the place. You see it in, um, in his, regarding his promise to suffer. You see it in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah says what? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, for, and as one from whom men hid their faces or hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Now, if you say that sounds a lot like Jesus, you would be right. But if you say that the time that this was written must have been pretty close to the time that Jesus existed in order for this to sound so much like him, you would be wrong. Christ died around 30 to 32 AD. This was written around 700 BC. In other words, 700 years prior. This prophecy was being laid in place for Christ to fulfill. He says, this is your evidence. Look back to the Old Testament that speaks of me, that talks about me. But not only does the Old Testament speak about his suffering, but it speaks about his resurrection as well. You say, where could that be? Psalm chapter 16, verses 10 through 11, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol and let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The scripture says, listen, that he opened their minds. That's what Luke tells us in chapter 24, that he opened their minds to begin to see what the Old Testament said about him. You know, initially uh, the disciples would have looked at a text like Psalm 16 and they would have thought about David. But as Peter visited this same text in his first sermon after the day of Pentecost, 
the day that the Holy Spirit came and later Paul from a Antioch synagogue in Acts chapter 13, we find the apostles using this passage to reference Jesus and his resurrection power. They say, no, 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 no. David, he slept. David actually went down to Sheol. But Jesus, his body did not see corruption. God raised him up. And so a text that's written 700 years ago in Isaiah speaking about Jesus, a text written 1,000 years ago in the Psalms speaking about Jesus. What is the likelihood of that? One in 10 octillion. I did the calculations. I didn't do the calculations. A really, really smart guy did the calculations. But one in 10 octillion that all of these prophecies from all of these centuries be fulfilled in this one person. And it is here that we find a massive difference between Jesus and other religious figures because Jesus' claims take place on a stage of history and on a stage, a a public stage. Everything that he claims and everything that um, that happens does so for us to see and witness. Prophecies are made and then prophecies are fulfilled for all of us to see. Miracles are performed for the world to see. He's hung for the world to see. And he's raised for the world to see. He's a historical savior. All of the religious figures find their beginnings of their faith done in private. However, the prophetic fulfillment of Christ is on public display. And this is grace for the doubters. Yet Jesus says there is more grace. He says in in chapter 24, he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. We talked about the fact that that Jesus already uh, proclaimed that the Christ should suffer and that the Christ should be raised. But then he talks about the idea that this suffering and this resurrection is through, is for the repentance and forgiveness of sin. In other words, he is suffering the wrath of God, becoming the ultimate sacrifice, leading to him becoming the ultimate substitution. Through the sacrifice, we receive redemption. He suffers in becoming the sin offering, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then he rises and demonstrates power and demonstrates victory. What is the most threatening thing that we have in humanity? What do we protect at all costs? Life. Jesus demonstrates power over it. Death. We protect ourselves from it at all costs. Jesus demonstrates power over it. Then he says, forgiveness of sin. He grants. That's your salvation. You know what you don't see in any of this text? You don't see salvation with riches. You don't see salvation with rescue from trouble. You don't see salvation with situations getting better. You don't see salvation with better jobs and better families and better kids and better dogs. All of that is speculation, saints of God. Things might get better. But if things don't get better in this life, you know you have another one coming. 
and you know that there is a God who walks with you in this life. You know that there is help for you in this life leading you all the way to the next. That's the assurance you've been given. You see, none of that will send you to hell. Money won't send you to hell. In terms of you getting more money, that's not going to help your case. You getting better dogs, that's not going to help your case. Better kids, that's not going to help your case. You know what your issue is and my issue is? Sin. We need to be redeemed from it. And Christ has paid the price for our redemption. But notice that forgiveness of sin here is listed with repentance. You see, Christ's death and resurrection has enabled repentance to happen. It has unlocked us from the bondage of sin. Verse 49, it says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The resurrected Christ gives grace through his spirit. He gives grace through prophetic evidence, grace through um, physical evidence, grace through redemption, and grace through his spirit. You see, the, the Christ meets us in our doubt by providing of providing a helper for our doubt. The Spirit, the Bible says, will guide us and glorify Christ. It says in John chapter 16, when the, truth, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me. The Spirit, the Bible says, will give you life and bring us life. Romans chapter 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit will intercede for you. The Bible says when you're too weak, when you don't even know how to pray, the spirit will offer prayers without even uttering words. The Spirit will embolden you. The Bible says that when the Spirit comes, you shall receive power and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and all the, and to the ends of the earth. And then, of course, the Spirit will seal us. The Bible tells us that we have been sealed with the promised Spirit, meaning that the Spirit will keep you until the day of redemption. The Spirit will not let you go. Saints of God, in 20 plus years of faith, I can tell you there are many days that have come that I've wanted to be let go. Many. <laughs> let go, Jesus. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. The Spirit keeps me. And there may be waves of doubt and waves of grief, but over time, he turns my affections back towards Christ, reminds me of that which is to come, reminds me of that this is not my home, that there is another one coming for me that is being prepared for me. Lastly, what happens when deep and profound doubt filled or fueled by deep and profound disappointment? 
embraces a resurrected Savior that possesses deep and profound grace to meet that doubt and disappointment head on. What happens when doubt and disappointment meets a Savior that can not only meet that doubt and disappointment head on, but trade that doubt and disappointment, to trade that mourning for dancing, to trade those tears of sorrow for tears of joy, to trade that powerlessness with the power of his spirit. What happens when deep and profound doubt meets a Savior like that? Verse 41, and while they still believed, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? What happens when that doubt and that disappointment meets a resurrected Christ? Unbelief becomes disbelief. What do I mean when I say disbelief? Is that it's a joy that I can't even believe I'm experiencing. So how, can, how can we have joy right now? How is this even possible? How did this happen? What we're witnessing right now. And, that, and, and, and I can tell you, saints, that that can even be your experience. For, for those of you all who don't know Jesus, that can be your experience. You can find yourself in the middle of great sorrow and great tragedy and great challenge and still holding on and say, I don't even know how it's possible that, that this is happening right now. How is it possible? Because you have experienced and seen the resurrected Savior. Chapter 24, verse 50, it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted with them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him, listen, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. Notice what happens. The doubters now return with joy. Return blessing God in the temple. Return worshiping. Why? Because they met the resurrected Savior. You see, from the abundance of joy, worship comes. From the abundance of joy, service comes. You see, from the abundance of joy, doubters now become believers going out telling other doubters about the goodness of the one who changed their unbelief to disbelief. That's what happens. That's what happens when you come in contact with the resurrected Savior. I want to invite you, if you do not know Jesus, would you come to embrace him this, this day as your Lord and your Savior? He has grace for your doubt. He has grace for your doubt, brothers and sisters. Let's pray.